tuxedo, as it were, and says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And the narrator of the book informs us that in all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Now the next day, the Satan again shows up in the courts of the Lord. And they have the same sort of interaction of, where have you been? I've been on the earth. And God again points out Job. He says, have you considered my servant Job? He still is an upright man, blameless. He fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity. Although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason, Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you. And the Lord says, I'll take that bet. Do your worst, but don't kill him. So Satan goes and afflicts Job with horrible boils all over his body. And Job is pretty much at the lowest point of his life. Job says, uh, again, to his wife, in this case, shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? And again, in all of this, Job does not sin with his lips. Job goes outside of the city, sits on a dung heap outside of the city, and basically scratches himself with pottery because of his nasty boils. He is later joined by three of his friends. Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, who is also the shortest person in the Bible, Shoe height. They don't. Anyway. And then Zophar, the Namathite. And at first they don't recognize him because he looks so horrible. And so when they do finally recognize him, they tear their tuxedos, throw dust and ashes on their head, and then they sit with him and they sit in silence for seven days. And then finally, Job opens his mouth. And speaks his peace. Now, in your uh, handouts, you all have this little thing here, which gives you the outline of where we're going with this. I think you can summarize Job's cry, where Job is coming from, what Job is saying, with this phrase, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I want to focus on three aspects of this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is Job's initial cry. Why me? Then secondly, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So we'll focus next on why you, why God? And then finally, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why forsaken? Why this particular set of calamities? So first, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why me? Job's cry is essentially, why me? What have I done to deserve this? Hear what he says in chapter 10, verses 1 through 7. He says, I loathe my life. I will give free utterance to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. 
Does it seem good to you to oppress, to despise the work of your hands, and favor the designs of the wicked? Have you eyes of flesh? Do you see as a man sees? Are your days as the days of man, or your years as man's years, that you seek out my iniquity and search for my sin, although you know that I'm not guilty? And there is none to deliver from your hand. Job saying, why me? You know I'm not guilty. What? Why would you seek out iniquities and sins that you know aren't there? Why would you do this to me? And while God does not immediately answer, Job's friends are quick to chime in with their own explanation. And their answer is essentially, well, Job, you must have done something. I can't imagine that this sort of calamity would befall somebody who was lily white and righteous. And so they say something like this. Here is Zophar in chapter 11. Should a multitude of words go unanswered, and a man full of talk be judged right? Should your babble silence men, and when you mock, shall no one shame you? For you say, my doctrine is pure, and I am clean in God's eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you, and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom. For he knows worthless men when he sees iniquity. Will he not consider it? If you prepare your heart, you'll stretch out your hands toward him. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away, and let not injustice dwell in your tents. Surely then you will lift up your face without blemish. You will be secure and will not fear. See, for Zophar, look, God knows iniquity when he sees it, and he deals with it, you know, justly. So clearly what's happening to you must mean that he sees iniquity in you. And so therefore, he's dealing with it. And all you need to do, Job, is repent. If there's iniquity in your hands, I don't know what it is, but certainly you do. You need to turn away from it. Similarly, Job's friend Eliphaz says something like this. He says in chapter 15, What is man that he can be pure? Or who is born of a woman that can be righteous? Behold, God puts no trust in his holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less one who is abominable and corrupt, a man who drinks injustice like water. Hint, hint, I'm talking about you, Job. Now this is a striking thing for us as readers, because the fact is, you know, and I know, and Job knows, And most importantly, God knows that Job is in fact innocent. He is an upright man, fearing God, turning from evil. These things that his friends are sort of grasping at aren't there. They don't obtain. They're not true. In fact, one of the striking things is that his friends even know this, and they betray themselves by their own words. Listen to what Eliphaz says earlier on in his first speech. He says, Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. 
Is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? Eliphaz is saying, look, I, I know you take care of the poor. You take care of the orphan, the widows. You, you, you care for them. You do righteous things. Is not your fear of God your hope that he's going to rescue you out of this circumstance? Eliphaz's first argument to Job depends upon his recognition of Job's being righteous. But then compare that with what Eliphaz says later in chapter 22, verses 5 through 7. The same Eliphaz says to Job, Is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquities. For you have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing, and stripped the naked of their clothing. You have given no water to the weary to drink, and you have withheld bread from the hungry. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds like a direct contradiction to what Eliphaz said earlier on in the book. It sounds to me like these are trumped up charges. Job's friends are trying to make Job out to be wicked, even though deep down they know Job and they know that he's not. And the question is, why would they do that? What possible reason could they have for that? And the answer seems to be that their theology won't let them deal with the facts before their very eyes, the fact of an innocent man, one so innocent and righteous as Job, being in the circumstance that he's in. They can't, they can't make sense of that. And what they're doing is they are drawing upon traditional wisdom, common in the ancient world and even common in the Bible. So, for instance, they are taking things like Proverbs 10.3. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the craving of the wicked. Or Proverbs 12.21. No ill befalls the righteous but the wicked are filled with trouble. Or Proverbs 13.25, The righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite, but the belly of the wicked suffers want. They're taking these sorts of sayings, this sort of traditional wisdom, and treating it as though these were laws of nature, like gravity, what goes up must come down. If you're righteous, then you'll prosper. If you're wicked, then you'll suffer. But that's not how wisdom is supposed to work. That's not how wisdom literature in the Bible is supposed to work. That's not how wisdom literature in general works. Wisdom is generalized truths, not laws of nature. Wisdom is inherently provisional. There's always a it-depends factor that you have to bring to wisdom. And that's precisely what Job's friends are failing to do. Let me illustrate this for you. If you would, just turn with me to Proverbs 26, verses 4 through 5. Proverbs 26, 4. Answer not a fool according to his folly lest you be like him yourself. Proverbs 26.5 Answer a fool according to his folly, 
lest he be wise in his own eyes. So you have one proverb saying, answer not a fool according to his folly. Don't do it. Then you have the other proverb saying, answer a fool according to his folly. And they're right next to each other. And the obvious question is, well, which is it? Do I answer the fool according to his folly, or don't I? And the answer is, well, it depends. It depends on the fool. It depends on the folly. It depends on the circumstance. It depends on a whole lot of things. And it takes wisdom to know when this traditional wisdom applies. Here's another example. Proverbs 18.22. It says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. And so often that is absolutely true. I think most of the men here can attest to that. But then there's Proverbs 21.19. It is better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. Now, here's the thing. Is it always the case that when somebody finds a spouse, it's a good thing and an example of obtaining favor from the Lord? Well, not always. Sometimes you see examples of marriages that are just not a good thing. Which brings us to the point that sometimes the exceptions to traditional wisdom can be very, very painful exceptions. So, for instance, Proverbs 22.6 Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, so often that is true, and praise God for that. But some of you are living in the midst of very painful exceptions to that general truth. Some of you are faithful parents and you've done everything you know to do to train your child up in the way they should go. And now they're just not walking with the Lord at all. And if I were one of Job's friends, I might say to you, well, you must have done something wrong. It must be your fault somehow. But I think we know that sometimes it just doesn't work out that way. Another painful exception is perhaps Proverbs 23, 24. The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. He who fathers a wise son will be glad in him. And often that is true. And that's wonderful. But sometimes it's not. Some of you are here who came to Christ later in life and you have been pursuing righteousness and you are, you are growing in the Lord, but your parents just do not share your faith. And the fact is, far from rejoicing in your righteousness or your striving after righteousness, far from it, they really, it's the thorn in their side. And that's probably one of the most painful things that you have to deal with. There are exceptional cases, always, in, in the way wisdom works. And that's just how Proverbs functions. They're not laws of nature. 
there's exceptions. And Job's case is precisely one of these painful exceptions. Here we have a righteous man who is in agony, contrary to all received wisdom. And his friends just can't handle it. But what's really troubling is that Job's experience opens his eyes to the fact that exceptional cases aren't really all that exceptional. So listen to what he says in Proverbs, or not in Proverbs, in Job 24. He says this, Why are not times of judgment kept by the Almighty? And why do those who know him never see his days? Some move landmarks. They seize flocks and pasture them. They drive away the donkey of the fatherless. They take the widow's ox for a pledge. They thrust the poor off the road. The poor of the earth all hide themselves. Behold, like wild donkeys in the desert, the poor go out to their toil, seeking game. The wasteland yields food for their children. He even goes on, There are those who snatch the fatherless child from the breast, and they take a pledge against the poor. They go about naked, without clothing, hungry. They carry their sheaves. Among the olive rows of the wicked, they make oil. They tread the winepress, but suffer thirst. From out of the city, the dying groan, and the soul of the wounded cries for help, yet God charges no one with wrong. Job's circumstance has opened his eyes to all sorts of injustice and all sorts of undeserved suffering all around him. And this is really perhaps where Job's greatness comes in. Because Job never backs down from the fact that he is righteous, he is innocent, and yet he is suffering. And that innocent suffering happens. And so Soren Kierkegaard said this, as you have on the front of your bulletin. He says, Job, 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 didst thou indeed utter nothing but these beautiful words? The Lord gave, the Lord hath taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Didst thou say nothing more? No, thou who in the ripeness of thy days wast a sword for the oppressed, a cudgel to protect the old, a staff for the decrepit, thou didst not fail men when all was riven asunder, when thou wast a mouth for the afflicted, and a cry for the contrite, and a shriek for the anguished, and an assuagement for all who were rendered dumb by torments, a faithful witness to the distress and grief a heart can harbor, a trustworthy advocate who dared to complain and anguish of spirit and to contend with God. Why do people conceal this? Does one perhaps not dare to complain before God? Thee I have need of, a man who knows how to complain aloud, so that his complaint echoes in heaven, where God confers with Satan in devising schemes against a man. Job's Greatness is his willingness to adhere to his own righteousness, to his justice, and to cry out to God from that standpoint. To say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which brings us to our next point. Why you? Why you, God? Why have you done this? 
It's interesting that Job knows that it is ultimately God with whom he has to deal. Job never falls into the mistake of thinking that he just had a, he has rotten luck. Or he never makes himself think that the people he needs to deal with are the evil people who came in and stole his livestock and killed his servants. He doesn't blame the people. Nor does he get distracted by his friends who are trying to argue him into believing that he's done something wrong. He knows that ultimately it is God with whom he must deal. And it is to God that he directs his complaint. Because he knows that ultimately God has done this and God alone can make it right. The Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. The Lord, blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, of course, arguing with God, arguing a case against God, is somewhat audacious, it seems. But nevertheless, that's what Job does. Hear what he says. Uh, Job 13, starting in verse 18. Behold, I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be in the right. Who is there who will contend with me? For then I would be silent and die. Only grant me two things. Then I will not hide my face or myself from your face. Withdraw your hand far from me, and let not dread of you terrify me. Then call, and I will answer, or let me speak, and you reply to me. How many are my iniquities and my sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. Why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? Now, arguing with God is not entirely unknown in the Bible. That may sort of come as a shock, because it seems sort of strange that somebody might argue with God. But it happens uh, elsewhere in Scripture. So, for instance, in Genesis 18, Abraham argues with God about whether or not he can destroy Sodom and Gomorrah if there are righteous people in there. Or uh, Exodus 37, the golden calf incident. Moses has to argue with God about whether or not it would be a good idea to smite all of the Israelites for having made this this golden calf. He says, what would the Egyptians think? Interestingly, Abraham and God reach sort of a compromise, and Moses wins the argument, and God doesn't smite them after all. Nevertheless, Job's friends take exception. They don't see this as a fitting way to interact with God. But Job nevertheless talks over them. And so in chapter 31, he basically throws down the gauntlet before the Lord, calling down upon himself all sorts of horrible curses should any shred of evidence be found that he has somehow gone astray. He says, If I have walked with falsehood, and my foot has hastened to deceit, let me be weighed in a just balance, and let God know my integrity. If my step has turned aside from the way, and my heart has gone after my eyes, and if any spot has stuck to my hands, then let me sow, and another eat, and let what grows for me be rooted out. Or, Verse 16 through 22. If I have withheld anything that the poor desired, or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or have eaten my morsel alone, and the fatherless has not eaten of it, 
Then let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder, and let my arm be broken from its socket. He says, look, if you have anything on me at all, then throw the book at me. Go ahead, finish me off. Really, this is Job reaching fever pitch in his argument. And it is precisely here where we would expect God to come in and pick up that cast-down gauntlet and answer Job accordingly. But what Job finally finds here is not God, but an astounding anticlimax. He doesn't hear from God, the Hebrew word for God being El. Instead, he gets a 20-something blowhard, like myself, named Elihu. And Elihu goes on a tirade for several chapters, saying nothing very different from what Job's friends have already said before. And far more deafening than Elihu's tirade is probably the fact of God's silence at this point. Precisely when Job is at his most dramatic point is precisely when he would expect to hear from God and he does not. running short on time, so I won't read from C.S. Lewis, even though it's a wonderful, wonderful passage. And this point brings us to the point where there's a question of, where is God in this? Precisely when he expects to hear from him, he does not. It seems like he's utterly forsaken. And so hence the question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God is silent when Job expects to hear an answer, but the silence doesn't last. Eventually, God does speak. And when God does speak, he says everything that Job has been dreading. As we read in chapter 9, verses 15 through 17, Job says, Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. If I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. For he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. And sure enough, chapter 38, verse 1, when God comes out the gates, then the Lord answered Job, and out of the whirlwind, or tempest, it's the same word in Hebrew, answers Job out of the tempest and says, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. There's no hint that God is really ready to listen to what Job has been saying for all this time. In fact, God goes on to talk about his mighty works in creation, his power, his eternity, his knowledge. And Job knows all these things. When you go home, read chapter 9, and then read chapters 38. Chapter 9, which is Job, sort of saying, what I'm most afraid of is that God is going to come here and say this. It, it reads like a precis, or a summary, of everything that God does come and in fact say. For 70 verses, he blasts Job with, I am ancient, I am powerful, I am mighty. But when has Job said otherwise? Job's question has been, are you righteous? 
Are you just? Might does not make right. And how is this? What has happened to me? How is this right? And for those 70 verses, God never once addresses the question of justice. So finally, he says to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Job says, Behold, I am of small account. This is not something new. Job has said this before. He says in chapter 7, this is part of his argument. He says, What is man that you make so much of him, that you set your heart on him and visit him every morning and test him every moment? How long will you not look away from me, nor leave me alone till I swallow my spit? If I sin, what do I do to you, you watcher of mankind? That's part of Job's grievance. I I haven't done anything to hurt you. I'm small. I'm of no account. And he says, how shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Job promises silence is what the heading reads in the ESV. Now, typically we take that as the first step of Job knuckling under, but I don't think that's quite what's going on here. You don't have to have been in any relationship for very long to realize that there is such a thing as the silent treatment. To realize that there is such a thing as passive-aggressive sort of approaches to conflict. One 10th century rabbi observed, when one interlocutor says to his partner, I can't answer you, it may mean that he acquiesces in the other's position, equivalent to saying, I can't gainsay the truth. Or it may mean he feels overborne by his partner, equivalent to saying, how can I answer you when you have the upper hand? And I think that's much more of what's going on here. Job is saying, I've said my piece, I've stated my case, and I can't answer you when you're speaking to me out of the storm, and all you're talking about is your power, and you won't talk to me about how this is just. Silence is not always deferential. Sometimes silence is defiant. And so God continues... Then the Lord answered Job, out of the whirlwind again, out of the tempest again, and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me, that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? He goes on to talk about some wonders of his creation that he has absolute mastery over, things that Job could never hope to get a handle on, uh, namely Leviathan and Behemoth. After going through this speech, Job finally answers the Lord and he says, I know that you can do all things. And here you have the insert. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Job knows this. 
Job's already said several times he knows that God can do all things, that he's powerful. And then he does something interesting. This is a passage that is typically read as, well, as the heading in the ESV says, Job's confession and repentance. I don't like to do this typically, but I don't quite think that that's what's going on here. I don't think that this is Job confessing or repenting of anything. I've provided my own translation here, uh, which is a bit untraditional, but I see this as rather Job's concession and repugnance. He says, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. The next words that he says, Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? This is a quotation from the very beginning of God's speech. Job is quoting God back to God. He says, Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. Again, a quote from the beginning of God's speech. He says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now that my eye sees you, I despise and grieve. What is this? The ESV says, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now this is the traditional reading. This is what you'll find in most Bibles. And the traditional reading, it does see as Job is confessing and repenting. But all this depends on a single word in the text, namely, myself. That word, myself. And the problem with that is, is that that word is not there in the Hebrew. It's not clear what or who is the object of Job's despising. And what's more, the word repent uh, is not clear. It doesn't really mean repent most of the time. Often it can mean grieve. It can mean be comforted. It can mean several different things. And so the text is kind of ambiguous. So, just to give you my two cents, I read this as, he says, I despise and grieve on behalf of mere dust and ashes. Now, why on behalf of mere dust and ashes? Dust and ashes is a phrase that occurs only one other place in the Hebrew Bible. And that one other place is in Genesis 18, where Abraham is arguing with God about Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says to God, Behold, I have spoken to you, even though I am but dust and ashes. It is an idiom, a euphemism for mere mortals. That's the idea. Job's response here to God is, well, if this is it, if you're powerful and mighty, and that's all you've got to say about that, then I despise, I I abhor, and I grieve for mere mortals. Because we're done for. If that's all there is to you, God, if you're just powerful and that's all, you're not righteous, you don't have some moral compass guiding your decisions, then woe to us. Job's response here is not, God be merciful to me, a sinner. His response is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, forsaken us? Why, why 
this. This is Job throwing in the towel. Job is broken at this point. He's stuck to his guns. He's never given up on his, uh, his, his belief in his integrity or his belief that God, if he's going to be just, has to set this right. And when it looks like God's not going to set this right, he does the only thing he knows to do, and that's to cry out and to give up hope. And then the strangest thing happens. After this, the Lord, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Aliphaz, the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer a burnt offering for yourselves, and so on. Eliphaz and his friends have not spoken what is right of God. But somehow or other, Job has. What has Job said? Job has done two things. He has held on to the fact that innocent people do suffer. There is injustice in this world. And then the other fact that God has to do something about that. God's got to set this thing right. And he's stuck to his guns, even when it seemed like even God himself was weighing in against him. These are precisely the things that Job's friends have not been willing to do. Job's friends have not been willing to countenance the possibility that the world might not always be a just place. And they have not been willing to put God's very righteousness on the line, even though they are faced with insurmountable counter-evidence in Job's own situation. But Job, having stuck to his guns, believing that there are things that are horribly wrong and unjust in this world, and that God must do something about this, is the one who is vindicated. God restores Job. God heals him. God restores him to his social standing, gives him back twice as much wealth as he had before, and gives him, again, seven sons and three daughters, who all live very well and live very long. Job dies an old man and full of days, Job is given the ideal ancient Near Eastern conception of life. Job is, you might even say, resurrected from being in a state of almost death, brought to the lowest point that you could expect him to be brought, and yet God then raises him. Now, the story of Job, as I've just sort of rehearsed it, can sometimes leave us cold. The main questions that I find from people when I talk about Job is, one, how does giving Job new kids in any way replace the children that he lost in the first place? And then the other question is, sure, I see that God vindicates Job in the end, but somehow... I'm still left with the very unsettling picture of God having afflicted this innocent man in the first place. You know, Job chapter 42 doesn't erase chapters 1 and 2. There's still a whole lot there at the beginning of the book that might keep us awake at night. 
And I would say that these sorts of doubts and nagging uh, apprehensions about what we have here in Job would just have to linger were it not for Jesus. For you see, in Jesus, the very God who orchestrated the troubles that Job saw, that very same God steps into Job's shoes and becomes himself the ultimate innocent sufferer. And whereas Job seemingly suffered for nothing, Jesus suffered for much more. He suffered for not nothing, but for the sins of many. And what's more, if you think that, okay, Job gets twice of his, twice his possessions back, and Job gets new kids, that's okay, that's a start on restoring Job. You'd be absolutely right. That is just a start. Because the restoration that comes in Christ is the finishing out of what you see only a hint of at the beginning or at the end of the book of Job. In Christ, the one who stepped into Job's shoes and himself was hung on a cross and cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There is a much greater restoration than anything that Job had ever even thought to dream of. And it is in him that we can look to the facts of this world, of things going horribly wrong, things that are grossly unjust, things that are terribly skewed, people who are innocent and who are suffering and who ought not to be. We can look at that and know in confidence that not only will God set it right, but in Christ he already has begun doing that. So let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that chapter 42 of Job is not the end of the story. Marvelous and hope-giving as it is, we thank you that you alone are the end of the story and the end of all things. Lord, we pray that you would be with us to help us to grapple with,